Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey everyone, today's podcast was recorded at the 18th Annual Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine meeting that met on November 22nd through the 24th in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. One amazing aspect of this meeting was the showcasing of all sorts of collaboratives that that are happening in various communities worldwide to increase breastfeeding rates. For those of you who were not able to join us for this meeting, we hope you enjoy our interviews with various meeting participants about their community initiatives, their impressions of our meeting, and our interviews with some of the presenting researchers at the conference. Before you check out our meeting sound bites, Karen and I would love to take questions from our listeners. So if you have questions or comments, suggestions for topics, or you'd like to call us out on grammar, misinformation, or just bad humor, please email us at areglash, that's A-R-E-G-L-A-S-H, at WISC, W-I-S-C dot E-D-U, or post on our Facebook page, The Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. And while you're there, please like us. So let's go and check out the meeting. I'm still pumping. I'm pumping at this meeting. So I have Nicole and Lori. They're both physicians. Nicole Hackman, who's from um, Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And Lori Jones, who is a pediatrician from St. Joseph's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. And Nicole, what kind of doctor are you? I'm a pediatrician. Okay. So you guys have been to this meeting before. I have. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. I went last year to Chicago. Okay, and have you been here, Lori? No, this is my first year. And what do you guys think about the conference? I really enjoy it. I look forward to it every year um, for the second year in a row. <laughs> it's my only mag- or journal that I read completely. Um, so I'm really excited to be here talking with everybody about a subject that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, and what about yeah. you? It feels really good to be in a room full of like-minded people who are physicians, who speak the same language, and who are passionate about breastfeeding and mother-baby health. Right. It doesn't seem like we all have something majorly in common when we come to these meetings. Absolutely. And so much to learn from each other. That's one of the things I find myself scribbling down are ideas and um, examples from other communities and hospital systems that have worked and things that I hope to implement in our practice. Right. Right. I like seeing that it's not just pediatricians who take care of babies. There are OBGYNs, surgeons, family medicine docs, med peds, uh, neonatologists, it's a very diverse group of people. Yeah, but where's the men? There's some, and yeah. there are, there's one in particular who's very proud and has on a great T-shirt that says, real men go to breastfeeding medicine conferences. I saw him, too. <laughs> great. Well, thanks a lot for talking to me. And enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks. Sure. Hey, Karen, we have some, uh, some new members here. Hey, we're having fun at the ABM conference. And, yeah. Uh, I think they've got some questions for us. I think so, too. Let's see. So we have uh, Dr. Tamara Fusco. That's Fusco? right. Yes, Fusco. Where are you from? I'm from Nixon, Missouri, in southwest Missouri. And you're a pediatrician. I'm a pediatrician, and I'm a new FABM. Yay, congratulations. Yay. Hey, that's so cool. And what does it take to be an FABM? Uh, it takes a lot, actually. It takes seven <laughs> years of membership, three um, attended conferences for ABM, uh-huh. and evidence of either advocacy, education, research, or um, other uh, breastfeeding um, promotion. Well, high fives on that. Woohoo! Woo! Okay, so we have Sonder. Is that how you pronounce your name? That's how you pronounce yeah. it, yeah. Sonder Crane? Uh-huh. And you're a pediatrician? Yes, uh-huh. general pediatrician. Great. And um, so are you enjoying the conference? I am. It's been awesome. Great. And you have a question for Karen. Yes, I do. So the mic is on both sides. So what's your question? So my question is, in your practice, do you guys use a lot of galacticogs? Or um, do you, I mean, obviously after trying to do um, frequent removal of milk from the breast, then how do you, what do you use and how do you do that? 
Well, uh, I almost think that question was a plan because Ann and I are planning to do a podcast coming up talking about um, Galactagogs and the research um, base behind Don Peridone and Raglan. So um, I can't necessarily tell you all of the information right now, but I do use um, Galactagogs in my practice at times. Um, and like you said, it's really important to do all of the position and latch, mechanical things first, um, look and, you know, see if there's some other hormonal or other problem that's causing a problem, but it is helpful at times. I've found a lot of, um, a lot of physicians have ended up using galactagogues because they are pump dependent and that can really make it hard to maintain a supply. But I think you're asking whether or not it's okay for pediatricians to treat the mom. Is that, is that your question? That is, yeah, that's part of it. Yes. Um, I personally, I am a pediatrician, and I, when I'm practicing breastfeeding medicine, do believe that um, prescribing for the mom is within my scope of practice, be it galactagogues or antibiotics, as long as I am comfortable that the mom has, she's essentially a healthy mom, that I understand all of her medical conditions, I've done an adequate history and physical, know her allergies, and all of those things that you would do for your patient. And most nursing mothers are young and healthy. I have taken care of some moms with complicated medical problems like Tetralogy of Fallot, and that's probably actually easier for a pediatrician than an adult doctor, because we're really, really used to that diagnosis. Um, But I think that People who are experienced in practicing breastfeeding medicine often do get very comfortable um, treating the moms. And then I have a chart for the mom, and I document what I'm doing. Will you also be discussing the AAP's latest policy statement on the transfer of drugs into human milk, where they talk about galactagogs in a negative sense? Go to (laughs) iTunes and look up the AVM podcast, and you can hear us talking about it. Actually, to find the podcast, you look up Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. And if you go to the um, Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine website at www.bfmed.org, you'll find our podcasts. And if you go to anneglash.com, you will again find the podcasts. Okay. Yeah. So Stephanie had a question. Stephanie, tell us about yourself. I'm Stephanie. I'm from St. Louis. Um, and my question was, do you have any babies with trisomy 21 that go home exclusively breastfeeding? And that's for Karen. <laughs> I have had personal experience with um, babies in the NICU who have gone home exclusively breastfeeding and have continued um, for six months exclusive breastfeeding and even beyond that with introduction of complementary foods. And so what would be the things that you'd want to watch for with uh, trisomy 21 in terms of, um, you know, monitoring to make sure that they are gaining well? I think that like all, all babies, when I'm worried about um, normal growth, I'm following their weight. I think um, in particular because babies with trisomy 21 are more likely to have a heart defect. Most of them we know. By the time they leave the NICU, they've had an echo, and so we're really aware of what's going on. If they do have um, a, a defect, then it can evolve over time. So we're watching for you know, more trouble with feeding, sweating, and um, lack of endurance, and then their weight are the, the biggest clues. And they're just we follow them really closely. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I love about breastfeeding medicine is that I have no qualms about bringing back my babies over and over again in the first few weeks until that mom says to me, do I have to keep coming? (laughs) I keep seeing that mom and reassuring her and making sure that she feels really confident and make sure that she knows, hey, if some bump comes along down the road and you have a question or concern, I'm here, come back. Right, right. So, Stephanie, as a neonatologist, do you have any other comments about trisomy 21, like other complications of trisomy trisomy 21 that would make you be concerned about their growth with breastfeeding? Um, I, um, I don't. I can't think of any right now. But I just want to remind everybody to plot them on the Down syndrome growth curve, and um, so that we aren't expecting more out of them than than what should be. Great advice. Thank you. So I have Ann Witt with me today uh, from University Heights, Ohio, and Ann is a um, family physician and breastfeeding medicine specialist, and we're going to talk today about her work with chronic breast pain. Um, Yeah, so Ann, so tell us about your chronic breast pain project. 
So recently we did a study looking at women with chronic breast pain, trying to start to answer the question of all the controversy if yeast or bacteria are causing that pain. Uh, many women come to me saying, I have refractory yeast, I have persistent yeast, and you know, wanting long courses of treatment. And there have been some interesting studies looking at kind of potentially a bacterial role in that. So um, wanted to enroll women who are having chronic breast pain and also looking at the bacterial culture data that goes with that. So we started um, with all women just coming in and getting what we would describe as kind of optimal lactation care. They got lact, um, looking at the latch, looking for other causes of pain, mechanical pain such as tongue tie or trauma from their um, pump or if there's any component of vasospasm that some heat or something else would help with. And at that enrollment visit, we got pain levels, found a sense of how their pain was, worked on their latch, looked at various things, and then followed up with the moms approximately five days later when the culture results were back, and we asked them, is their pain getting better or worse? And depending on how they were responding clinically, decided to offer them a course of oral antibiotics or just continue with what they were getting if they were improving already with what we called conservative care. So what kinds of, did you, how did you make a decision on the type of antibiotic that you were using? So all women got started on dicloxacillin for a 10 or 14 day course just as a baseline as a good basic anti-staphylococcal medicine unless they had allergies or if the culture showed, like if it was a staph aureus culture that showed resistance to dicloxacillin, then we would adjust based on the sensitivities of the culture results. Got it. Um, and so then we followed both of these moms, all these moms out to 12 weeks, and they got email surveys every two weeks following their pain, so we could look at pain over time over 12 weeks, and then following their outcomes looking for complications such as mastitis, plug ducts, or abscess, and early weaning, if they were weaning, and why they were weaning. And what we found is that in both groups, both moms re improved in, t in time, whether or not they were in the oral or the conservative group. By 12 weeks, they had all proportionally decreased the same amount in their pain levels. So that reinforcing the importance of getting back to the basics of good right. lactation support, that that can resolve a lot of causes of pain. But that the moms who weren't res responding in that initial group of five days who ended up going on oral antibiotics, that those moms had a higher level of pain at the initial visit, so they had more severe pain a statistically higher level, and that they were less likely to respond to lash correction in the office. So their pain didn't improve as much when you tried to work on their, um, their latch. Those are the two main things. And then also looking at the bacterial culture results, that those women who ended up on oral antibiotics were also statistically higher to grow staph aureus. So how long did you end up, did you just treat the, with the antibiotics for 14 days? So the mean length of antibiotic treatment was 12 days. Okay. And um, so do you feel that the results of your study will change your clinical practice? Yeah. They changed my practice in that it's okay to wait before starting antibiotics to rely on me working on ideal lactation care. Because a lot of these people had seen lactation consultants. They had already said they worked on the latch. They had said to do other things, but still working on other things like looking at tongue tie. It's important to start at that basic. And that by waiting, I'm not increasing the chances of mastitis, plug ducts, or weaning. That said, I should mention that if women were going to wean at that first visit, if they came in and said, I'm going to wean if you don't start something, they did get oral antibiotics at that first visit. We didn't right. stop that. If that's they said they're going to wean, I said, okay. Right. Um, but that was a small percentage. And we did an analysis pulling those moms out to still look if there was a difference in the two groups, and there wasn't. So even controlling for that. So that, and then the other thing is um, a shorter duration of antibiotics. That you know, kind of your typical course of about a 10-day, I would start with a 10-day course. Yeah. And, and I find if women are going to respond, if it's bacterial, they're going to respond, their pain goes down quickly. Right. And so would you say that at that three-month mark that the women had no pain or they still had some pain? I'd have to look at the data to remember exactly. I think it was like a one out of 10 pain. It was a, it was a one to two out of 10 pain, and right. that was not different between the two groups. Like the medium was that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Yeah, enjoy, enjoy the conference. Will do. Thank you very much. So I have with me now Katja Pijur, who is a CLC and head of lactation services at the Maternity Care Coalition in Philadelphia. Yes. Okay. And tell us about your project. 
Yeah, so this is about the uh, Breastfeeding Friendly Philadelphia uh, initiative. Um, and basically, we do address two pieces. We work with um, all the birthing hospitals here in Philadelphia and help them to change policies and practices to actually to improve breastfeeding rates. Um, but the ultimate goal is hopefully that they uh, go on a 40 pathway and achieve designation. And actually, meanwhile, they are all on a 40 pathway uh, on their way. We created a multi hospital task force. So you're referring to Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So we have a multi-hospital task force group um, which consists of all leadership staff from all those birthing hospitals from WIC, uh, from uh, AAP and Maternity Care Coalition and we meet on a quarterly basis and basically decided we join as a group and move this as a city-wide project further down because Philadelphia has very low breastfeeding rates so we really need to do um, a culture change and we want to normalize breastfeeding uh, it's going very well um, probably two of the hospitals will um, achieve designation in 2014 they were lucky because when we started this project a, a, year, a year further down they actually became part of the niche queue so now this group is also learning a lot from that initiative as well and tell us about niche queue um, I don't actually, I'm not involved in that. Okay. Those are those uh, the, the teams of the local hospitals because, again, I'm working at a non-profit, a maternal child um, non-profit, and we work with pregnant families, um, our population, our low-income, vulnerable population. Um, so we see also the other side um, of our clients and can then actually see when hospitals implement those changes, how it really, you know, um, how changes really um uh, um, um, are implemented and when clients then come back to us they tell us about their experiences and we can feed that back to the, to the group which is very exciting um, that part of the piece because it kind of also empowers and motivates the group because they see oh we are doing something actually something is happening right something is changing right so what is the funding for your maternity care coalition? Yeah, so um, so this program, because obviously as a non-profit, we have funding from a lot of uh, um, um, uh, sites. But this program is actually funding uh, funded currently through the uh, WK Kellogg Foundation. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, they are funding this project uh, to 50% actually. Um, and then we also have another project, with this, the, which is the doula-based uh, project to increase breastfeeding rates. Um, and um, this all started out uh, with the Get Healthy Philly initiative, which was funded through the uh, communities putting prevention to work, funding through the CDC. That's how it all started. They wanted to address childhood obesity, and we said, well, if you want to address childhood obesity, you have to start from the very beginning on. So we need to work with the hospitals. We need to work with employers, because our clients, they go back to work fairly quickly, and they can't express their breast milk. So Absolutely. we have to do something about it. Absolutely. So besides of our hospital work, we also work with Philadelphia regional employers um, and meanwhile we have 13 uh, model breastfeeding friendly employers so we use them as models for their industry uh, we created a portal on our website um, and have also video clips so that when other employers go to our website and kind of see oh this employer is similar to me I can do this as well so they can actually apply with us and can uh, be enrolled in a breastfeeding friendly employers certificate program which we have uh, developed so that's the other piece um, of the work Um, and yeah and um, there's still a lot to do that sounds great can you give us can you share your website address yeah so our website address is www.maternitycarecoalition.org great thank you so much and congratulations on your work thank you I have George Bugwithby, a physician and a pediatrician with Emory University. And he has a project, a poster, 2012 Breastfeeding Summit Reclaiming an African-American Tradition. Hi, uh, my name is George Bug, and this project, ROSE, Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere, is part of a national organization that uh, was started by uh, my wife, uh, Kim Bug, who's one of the co-authors of this presentation. Uh, we held our first summit uh, in 2011, uh, at Morehouse College. We brought together a number of leaders in breastfeeding education, physicians, nurses, uh, midwives, and just the general public to talk about the issue of reclaiming our heritage of breastfeeding among the African-American community. 
The second day focused on how to bring about a national uh, effort, and it has been very productive. We have now leadership uh, on many national committees as well as have set out to uh, do workshops in various areas, working through peer counselors as well as the faith-based initiatives and a father's initiative. So it's been a very successful uh, year for us. Thank Great. You. And how do you think you'll be using the outcome of your summit? Uh, the outcome of the summit has, has uh, propelled uh, my wife to uh, leadership positions uh, in breastfeeding education throughout uh, various organizations, as well as put her in contact with other leaders in breastfeeding throughout the, uh, the country. So we have uh, many summits that have been planned in other areas, uh, such as Arkansas, Louisiana, uh, as well as working in, in uh, breastfeeding education through WIC and their peer counselors in the uh, Georgia uh, area as well. Excellent. And then do you work with, um, do you have an uh, African-American breastfeeding coalition as well yeah. in your area? Uh, so uh, Rose is a part of a breastfeeding coalition, so the Georgia uh, coalition as well as ones that are being formed in other areas. So she's helped promote uh, breastfeeding coalitions in Louisiana and Mississippi as well, uh, which have uh, held many summits as well. Right. So it's a complicated issue to increase breastfeeding rates among African Americans, and it's not just educating African American women, but it's also helping them to be to fit into the community with breastfeeding, such as at work and at home. And so, uh, part of the initiatives are uh, father support groups, so there's a father component to it, as well as a faith-based initiative, because it's well known that the church plays a major role. And so making certain that the faith-based community supports breastfeeding within the congregation uh, as members as well as breastfeeding in the church itself. Uh, so we've made major strides with that and, uh, and trying to, again, work with the young people. We have a very uh, dynamic young uh, group of women who are working to promote it among them, uh, their peers, and that has been really successful. We we're very pleased with that one because they use all the social media uh, that exists now to promote breastfeeding. Right. Sounds like you have a long road, lots of work to do. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Congratulations on your poster, and for and I'm glad to see you're here today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I have with me Andrea Serrano, and she's with Health Connect One. So tell us about your organization and your project. Health Connect One is a community-based doula program where they go into the community and train women in the community to be doulas so that way they can support moms. And doing so helps kind of reduce the low birth weight, increases breastfeeding duration, providing support for moms to kind of prevent um, cesarean sections, and just being able to be a support between from hospital to home. So what, what community are you in? It's nationwide, and so we're in 47 different states, and each of them are basically trained by a key trainer, so they work with affiliate organizations, they train the person in that organization, and then that person then trains the community. So it's like a train-the-trainer, so it's community-based doula support and breastfeeding peer counseling. Excellent. And so is it targeting um, lower socioeconomic groups or minorities or both? It is. Um, it is targeting minority women. Um, women are at risk of usually having high-risk pregnancies and, you know, any type of complications. So, yes, they do target um, those kind of women. And then they also do advocacy work. So they pull the data to kind of help with the advocacy work when they go to Washington. Great. So tell me about your poster, what you have here today. So on our poster, it gives a little bit of background information about our community-based doula program and breastfeeding peer counselors training program. And it goes into how we collect the data through our doula data system, which was put together by Health Connect One, and addresses about 419 different variables, like collecting that type of data. And once the doulas put that data into information, we can then go ahead and aggregate it to get overall picture of how the work in the community is benefiting the community. Great. Okay. So, let's see. You have... Tell me about this uh, chart that you have here. So, the chart here depicts goals for the Healthy People 2020 and how Health Connect One is addressing those goals. So, you have, you know, the, the very low birth weight as the percentages of that. So, we want to have a low, very low birth weight percentage. And so, Health Connect One data shows that the moms that have worked with doulas at, um, only 1.6% of them have had very low birth weight babies. Um, for breastfeeding for three months exclusively, you know, the Healthy People 2020 is about a little less than 50%. That's their goal. But Health Connect One moms um, that have 
had a doula has reached about 57% of them are breastfeeding beyond three months. Wow, that is strength. That's amazing. Good work. Thank you. Anything else to tell us about your organization? Definitely check out healthconnect1.org and find out about what work is being done with Health Connect One in your local community because we are across the nation and different agencies are working with us to help get breastfeeding support and community doulas out in the community. That's outstanding. Just one last question. Where is your funding from? Well, for one of our replicated programs, it is the W.K. Kellogg Foundation has been a great sponsor in helping to fund um, our programs. Excellent. Thank you so much and congratulations on your poster. Thank you. So now I'm talking to Jennifer McDonald, who's a fourth-year medical student and an MPH candidate. She's at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and she has a poster called Breastfeeding Initiative for Medical Students. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, So this poster uh, describes the development process uh, for a breastfeeding elective for fourth-year medical students, uh, which we created at University of Illinois at Chicago um, to um, fill the need for an increased formal experience in breastfeeding for students that were interested in primary care for moms and babies. Uh, To develop this elective, we uh, did a lot of networking in the Chicago lactation community uh, to locate resources um, and individuals that would be interested in participating. We really expanded into the community. We allow community experiences for our students, participation in the WIC office, uh, local to UIC, uh, work with private practice IBCLCs, and um, also work with outpatient pediatrics, a private uh, pediatrician in practice. So how many hours is your program? The program is uh, two to four weeks, um, about 40 hours per week, so it's a full-time Wow, that's great. Do they spend time with any physician lactation consultants? We do not currently have any MD slash IBCLCs on our faculty. Uh, There are a few in the Chicago area, but their geographical distance is such that we could not ask a student to go that far. So maybe you need to train your faculty to become IBCLCs because you guys now are going to know more than the faculty does. Uh, I would agree with that. Uh, One of the purposes is to develop student interest such that these individuals will go on and become champions of breastfeeding themselves and can be the MD-IBCLCs of the future. And how many students have gone through the curriculum? So our first student starts on Monday, actually. That's very exciting. We have, yes it is. We have had a lot of interest. Um, Eleven students are in the process of signing up. Six are fully registered we are pretty much full for the uh, first uh, academic year, and we, w- we anticipate presenting results perhaps next year's conference. That's very exciting. And so this is an elective, and would you say that all of the different primary care specialties are represented, like people who want to go into PEDS, OB, and family medicine, or is it more PEDS? What would you say? Actually, uh, yes. We have people that are interested in family medicine, pediatrics, and OB that are very interested in this in this elective. Any men? Yes. Yay! Inquiry. <laughs> I don't believe that he is registered yet, but one student asked um, actually if it was appropriate for a male student to do the selective, and of course we answered that yes, it certainly is appropriate. There we are, need. Yes. There are many male champions of breastfeeding. Not many. Not enough. Right. Um, but certainly that it would be encouraged for him to take the selective. Right, and so what what, um, specialty would you like to go into? I, right now, um, I'm between uh, obstetrics and family medicine with obstetrics. Oh, okay. Well, let me give you some advice. You should become a family doctor, (laughs) because I'm a family doctor. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you for talking to me. So Karen and I are now talking to Melissa, Dr. Melissa Bartek, and Melissa is going to introduce herself and talk to us about the the Massachusetts Baby Friendly Collaborative. Great. And tell us more about yourself. Myself? Okay. Yes. I'm the chair of the Massachusetts Breastfeeding Committee, and I've been the chair since 2002, and I'm an internist and a hospitalist at Cambridge Health Alliance and a member of ABM. And in 2008... Um, we started a collaborative of 
Uh, the f we started with the four hospitals who had filed with Baby Friendly, and we met on Veterans Day in 2008. Um, and it was just a small group of us, and um, people in the room were crying because they were all trying to fight the good fight all by themselves in their hospitals with no support. And um, we grew and grew, and more hospitals joined. Um, when the collaborative started, we had our Department of Public Health send a letter out inviting those hospitals to join. And then um, we grew and grew. We would meet about every six weeks except through the summer. And then in January of 2013, we kicked it up a notch because of all the other collaborative efforts and the Best Fed Beginnings happening all over the country and we decided we would really kick it up a notch and we had the Department of Public Health sent letters to every hospital inviting them to come to our new um, inaugural meeting which we had in January in Worcester and it was the room was filled standing room only we had um, like about 35 of our 49 hospitals there we had about 150 people there were leaders, doctors, um, administrators, managers, and it was just really, really wonderful. We talked about, you know, the evidence behind the 10 steps and why it really matters and how this is patient-centered care and evidence-based, and we've just been going. We had um, our first phase of the collaborative. We decided that we would focus on the first hour of life, and so we had a lot of topics around that, and we shared, and we always had hospitals sharing their success about various initiatives through the first hour. And now, um, in the fall, we started with a new topic, which is um, issues around supplementation and formula use, and that's such a rich, rich topic. Um, so we're still going strong. And so um, can you just talk more about how the collaborative works with the Mother-Baby Summit that Dr. Bobby Phillips has talked about today at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine? And also, you are so popular because of your work with the, Madis with the Massachusetts Breastfeeding Coalition and Ban the Bags. And tell us how all those work together. Okay. Um, so the Mother-Baby Summit has been meeting once a year, and it was really a separate entity. Um, and last year we had sort of a happy coincidence. We had planned our spring all-state meeting of the collaborative, and right as we had announced the date, Bobby announced the date of the Mother-Baby Summit, and it was the same date. So we had a big conference call, and we said, okay, we're not going to put people through two meetings. We're not going to change the date. We're going to have our collaborative as the afternoon portion of the Mother-Baby Summit. And that way we got what few hospitals weren't already in the collaborative. They came on board, and um, it was just really popular. Um, and Ann Mearwood led us through a vote with your feet exercise, and we had stories of success. And, you know, it's a lot of the same summit stuff, but just really reinforced. Right. right. So. so I've heard this expression, vote with your feet, but honestly, I don't know what it, what it is. So can you tell us more about it? Um, okay. So you have everybody stand up shoulder to shoulder in a circle, and people have pieces of paper with, like, Sharpies, and they'll write down. People will go around the circle and write down a topic of something that's really of burning interest to them. And then the group will divide up, um, and you'll end up with maybe six, eight, ten of these topics. And the group will divide up, and the person who has the paper with the topic written on it will go to a table there's everybody's in round tables and people will just go to whatever topic interests them and each table will have like a faculty facilitator and then we'll all talk about things and troubleshoot and then at the end of the exercise each table will go around and report out what they talked about so it's sort of like a spontaneous breakout session where people get to network with people with the same concerns Exactly, and learn from each other and figure out how other groups solve problems and what resources that they used. And then during other times of the year, do the consortiums meet locally in smaller groups? So when we started this new phase two, we had, um, we had 
divided the state into east and west and we were having separate regional meetings and now we're sort of realizing that that's not working so well for us. We're just going to have all our meetings for the whole state and then we have um, a call-in number so if you can't be there you can call in and you know we'd like to do a sort of webinar format but we don't really have funding for that but we figured out ways to sort of share the different sites. Our, we're lucky that our state is not that geographically huge. Yeah, that's really interesting to me because um, having been in Los Angeles this last year, which has 57 hospitals, we even have regional groups within Los Angeles that we break out in our baby-friendly consortium. And um, it's really been amazing to me how that momentum from working with other hospitals and knowing how you're going to see them again propels people forward. It, it really is, and some of the other benefits is that we have a whole different group of people in the collaborative than our members of our coalition. It's not the same people. There's a lot of the same people, but it's also brought in a whole bunch of new people. So we have a conference every year, our coalition, and now you know what we're seeing is a lot of people from the collaborative who were never involved and never went to the conference before are going to our conference. This year, for the first time, our conference actually sold out. We had to turn people away. And Yay! Yeah, a lot of that was because we had all these new, this new blood from the collaborative. So it's really great, and the energy in the room is just, just fantastic. And, you know, people all really getting to know each other now and networking, and it's really been fantastic. And Bobby's also been a great contributor to the collaborative as well with all her knowledge. Yeah, I find that's one of the reasons I really love coming to ABM is because we get to network and just defeat off everybody's enthusiasm for this topic. And it sort of washes away that feeling you have that you're working in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. My next question is whether or not you guys are working in a collaborative model to try to improve outpatient support. We have talked about outpatient support, and we do share what each other are doing. Um, that's not a focus of our group now, but it certainly comes up, and we talk about it, and we do share what people are doing. So so um, I know at my institution, I know Bobby was talking to one of our pediatricians about setting up an outpatient clinic there. Um, so, you know, you're seeing the collaboration sort of extend throughout the continuum of care. So it's really great. And do you see yourself with the collaboration that, you, that you've been um, instrumental in developing, working with other states to develop um, a similar collaborative? Um, we would be happy to. I, I have presented about the collaborative in different settings, and I want to... Um, I want to present it at American Public Health Association next year so it can be a model. But we're seeing that a lot of other states are having collaboratives. And the interesting thing is when I ask those states, like, what's your funding and how are you paying for it? And they all have thousands and thousands of dollars. And our budget is $1,200. Our collaborative funds it ourselves. The only thing we pay for is we buy food. For people, we have the the meetings around supper time, and we we pay for food. And then when a hospital becomes baby friendly, we buy a cake. Um, our faculty are all volunteer. We don't get paid. It would be nice to have funding to pay our faculty for their time and preparation. But you know, people are just really committed, and it's just really satisfying. But we certainly are getting a lot done, literally on a shoestring. Well, congratulations on all your work, and thanks a lot for talking to us today. Yeah, it's really an honor to meet you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I'm back, and I'm talking to Dr. Lisa Amir. Dr. Amir is a family physician and researcher in breastfeeding medicine in Australia, and she presented some incredible work on women who are breastfeeding and uh, milk cultures uh, regarding candida, staph aureus, and chronic pain. So let's talk to Dr. Amir. Thank you, Anne. So I've been talking about the CASEL study, and CASEL stands for Candida and Staphylococcus Transmission Longitudinal Evaluation. And this is a, a big study that I've been doing in Australia. 
it took me many years to get enough funding to do this. Someone uh, said, how did you do it? So I just, um, it, it didn't just happen. It took actually five years to get the funding. Uh, and now I've... Uh, finished collecting the results and today I presented the main results. And what was the reason for the study? Well back in, in the 90s um, I did my, a master's study then about thrush or people say yeast in the breast um, because it was something that uh, I'd heard about from the lactation consultants I hadn't heard about in my medical career but I was seeing women who were coming in uh, having nipple pain and like a shooting pain in the breast um, and so I had the idea we would take swabs from women who had pain and other women. Uh, and we did that study, and mostly we didn't find candida, but we did find it more in the women who had pain than the women who didn't have pain. Uh, and after that, I went on to other research. I did my PhD on mastitis, actually, um, because that was easier <laughs> than thrush. Um, but in the last 10 years, there's been... Um, research that other people have done where they've isolated a lot of Staphylococcus aureus. So people have said maybe this doesn't exist, uh, thrush in the breast um, uh, doesn't exist and maybe the pain is due to to Staph rather than to Candida. So that's why I had the idea that uh, the studies in the past, including the one I'd done, were women who'd come to see me with pain uh, at one point in time. So they would uh, cross-sectional studies uh, and then there was a con control group who didn't have pain but I thought what you really need to do is to have a, a, like a clean field and start with women before they start breastfeeding recruit the women in pregnancy have enough women we worked out this about 360 women would be enough if we followed them uh, over time that some would develop what, what we would think is symptoms of thrush in the breast and we'd collect a lot of swabs looking for candida and staph and see which was more likely associated with this syndrome. Mm -hmm. so, um, so you recruited a group of dyads and then tell us what you ended up doing once you recruited um, the dyads and how many you recruited. Yeah, so we recruited in pregnancy, so we uh, didn't want um, to have... Uh, preterm infants so they the women were at least 36 weeks when we recruited them uh, and at that time we swabbed the mother's nose uh, and the mother's nipple for staff uh, and the mother co collected uh, a vaginal swab herself and then uh, after the baby was born we visited them in hospital and um, again swabbed the mother's nose and nipple uh, and collected some milk and the baby had a swab of the nose and the mouth and then we visited them at home each week for four weeks so there were four home visits and then we followed them up at eight weeks with a telephone call and they were swabbed at each of the visits over the four weeks they would be swabbed each time in all those same places is that correct yeah that's right so the same technique okay. um there was a lot of discussion with the microbiologists if we're, how we should clean the nipples someone just asked me about that was i telling them to wash the nipples so we didn't I was not wanting to change just normal practice because one thought that the microbiologist had was, you know, wash the nipples with chlorhexidine to get it really clean. I thought, well, then we're not going to have a normal group of women. So right, we right. just took the swab. Um, firstly, there were the two swabs that we took together. So one was for the standard um, um, microbiological techniques and the other for the molecular. was a special swab. But they we held them together so kind of at the same time there was a discussion which should be first you know anyway so they held the two swabs together and did this kind of zigzag motion over the nipple and areola particularly focusing if there was any damage right uh Alison Stubbe has this this 10 point diagram on her website so we followed that because no one else had any kind of protocol for taking right. the swab right and then we washed the uh the nipple and areola the researcher had um gloves on they washed it twice expressed a little bit of milk discarded it and then tried to catch like a clean catch specimen mm -hmm. so we did the same thing and we did it from each nipple my original thought was we just you know choose one nipple right <laughs> um, we do that with the nose we just take swap one nostril i mean right some right. you know you could you could go to town you know some some of the staff studies swab each nostril they swab the axilla the groin uh. um anyway um but we had a, a reference group, and uh, the Australian Breastfeeding Association was represented on the reference group. So, you know, we had um, a vaginal thrush expert, and um, well, Wendy Broadrib as a GP, and another candidate expert, and 
Mm, obstetrician and um, yeah anyway so the ABA person said, well, why just one? You know, I think probably you should do, you know, you might miss something on the other. So kind of almost doubled our work. Right, right. Right. So then what did you ask um, at the eight-week follow-up? We asked the same questions every week. We asked, uh, you know, how they were feeding the baby in the last 24 hours. So we have information about that, how much um, uh, express milk they gave, how much formula they gave. Um, and we asked them about uh, if they were having pain. If they were having pain, we asked them on a scale that I've been using uh, where zero is no pain and ten is the worst pain we've ever had mm-hmm. in the last 24 hours. And we asked them, was the pain burning? We asked them about breast pain. We also asked symptoms about mastitis, um, lumps, fever, so on. We asked them what treatments they were using. So what were your, um, what were your results in your study? So we found um, with the conventional microbiology, we didn't find very much candida uh, from the, the nipple, even from the baby's mouth, not that much. With the molecular uh, techniques, PCR, that we had a, a scientist who uh, did this, which isn't that difficult, but it's not a routine test, and it actually took him you know, several months to do these uh, testing. Um, we found more candida when we used that. So... Do you want me to actually give the numbers? Or? No, I think that you could just tell yeah, us in, in general. In, in general, yeah. yeah. So in general, we found um, that women who had um, burning nipple pain and breast pain not associated with mastitis were more likely to have candida isolated from the nipple, the milk or the baby, mm-hmm. than women who didn't have that pain. Mm-hmm. So that was the first hypothesis. The second hypothesis was about staph. Mm-hmm. Um, because people were saying, well, maybe staph causes the same pain. So we found a lot of staph. So 80% of the mothers and babies uh, were positive for staph at some time over the first four weeks. Um, and, and slightly more of the women who had these symptoms had staph than, than didn't, but um, there was, that's not the strong evidence of an association with staph. Right. Um, with nipple damage women if they uh, said they had nipple damage this was also associated with a burning with this burning nipple pain and, and breast pain and is that nipple damage at any time in those first eight weeks or at the time or at um, the eight week mark were they w- did they still have nipple cracks and it trauma at eight weeks or any time this is in the time to event analysis so it's a survival um, and it was up you know, up to yeah, up to the time that they develop the symptoms. Ah, okay. So it's, it's very complicated. In, in the paper, which we've published in BMJ Open, we have survival curves. So it shows uh, over the, uh, the, well, the four weeks, because we only have the microdata for four weeks, um, we, yeah, if women developed candida, developed thrush or nipple pain, nipple damage, sorry, um, you can see how that's associated with these symptoms. I see. So would you say overall that if women have open damaged nipples, a history of that, that they're more likely to have staph? Yeah, I think that's right, if the nipple's damaged. Um, But in this, each of these were kind of independent, so it wasn't quite as clear-cut as that. Um, So I guess what we're trying to say is that uh, a lot of women had burning pain, especially nipple pain, particularly in the first two weeks. Um, And I think the problem has been that some... Clinicians have heard, oh, burning pain is an indication of a thrush or yeast infection, and women have been unnecessarily diagnosed, treated uh, with antifungals. Um, and I think it's just one, just the way people describe pain is burning. And there's not many ways you can describe pain, uh, and people say it's like it's a shooting, a stabbing, uh, and so people have taken this as a shortcut to saying, oh, stabbing pain, that's thrush. And I think. You know what I've always said, you need to take a careful history, um, examine the baby, look at the attachment, uh, rule out other problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see something dramatic, if the nipple's looking really red, that's probably more like a dermatitis. Mm-hmm. If it's very damaged or looks yellow, it's probably more like um, a staph infection. Mm-hmm. So, um, But what we have found, particularly with the use of this PCR, the, the molecular techniques is that there was an association with candida so mm-hmm. I'm um, 
happy with that, I guess, but uh, it's not something we can take into clinical practice because there's not a test that um, we can just order. So, right, right. So for the clinician, right. it uh, doesn't really change things. Um, there's no shortcut. Right. Um, but for people who've been thinking, well, maybe thrush yeast in the breast doesn't exist, I think we can be assured that it does. Um, because we certainly we see people who've been breastfeeding fine and then all of a sudden they're given a course of antibiotics and they get nipple pain or the baby has antibiotics at eight months and then the mother has nipple pain and breast right. pain. So sometimes you can see quite clearly that was no problem and then something's come on and that's what it is. Where it's much more difficult is in those first few weeks where it's very common for women to have pain. Um, and I think I was just discussing lunchtime with someone talking about the controversy now with uh, tongue tie and yeah. lip tie maybe you know that's the new thrush people have stopped saying oh you know right. nipple pain you know in a week oh it's thrush now they're saying oh maybe you know it's a tongue tie so we just tongue, don't understand yeah. all, all these right. things and I think we just have to um, take the time to you know take a, ask a lot of questions think right. about other alternatives Vasospasm, does the pain get worse in the cold? You right. know, what other skin conditions have they got? You right. know, uh, what else can we we do just to keep the, the breastfeeding going, make it comfortable for them, uh, and, um, yeah, try to work out what's going on. Right, and probably give them really good support early on so that they don't end up with nipple trauma because of the way the baby's nursing. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if, it, if you have good skin integument, there's much less like there's the likelihood of infection is probably less. Yeah, um, you, you would think so. Yeah. yeah, but it is surprising that uh, even these women, most of them were uh, gave birth at a baby-friendly hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them were at a private hospital, which is on the same site, which isn't accredited as baby-friendly, mm -hmm. but mostly has the same practices. Uh, and these women were motivated to breastfeed. Ninety-three percent, I think, were continuing to breastfeed at eight weeks, um, but they did have a lot of nipple pain so I kind of worry when I see some of these posters that are saying you know tell mothers that you know it shouldn't hurt after for you know two days or something I think oh maybe that's just giving too rosy a picture and I think this is a big question how we can actually phrase it for new mothers yeah. to say well we, it shouldn't hurt forever and it shouldn't be excruciating but maybe it does take a couple of weeks for your nipples to get used to this new sensation Right, I would agree. And also, we didn't talk about just uh, neuropathic pain that Dr. Allison Stubbe talks about, um, that perhaps it, there, there is something that's neurologic that's not related to infection or latch or vasospasm or anything else, and we, don't, that's just, we just know the tip of the iceberg on that. Well, I think that's right. Alice and I had lunch um, the other day <laughs> and, uh, to talk about nipple pain. And, yeah, a lot of the things, you know, she's saying she's working with pain people in her hospital. I'm working with a physiotherapist. or well, not working. I'm writing an article with a physiotherapist, Lester Jones, who uh, has experience in a pain clinic and musculoskeletal pain. And he talks about the effect of central, central modulation or sensitivity. And if people are, are stressed, anxious, depressed, lonely... Uh, have other pain syndromes you know some women we've seen have back pain the other day I saw a woman who had um, pelvic instability she had a lot of pain in general so her her sensitivity is tuned way up so mm -hmm. what someone might just feel as a nipple discomfort she's experiencing as pain right. and if we can get her to kind of realize that that and get her some sleep and rest and you know pain relief uh, that can all help. It's, it's not just a matter of thinking it's just one thing, it's the damage, it's the infection. Exactly. There's these central effects as well. Exactly, exactly. Great. Well, well and on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me, Lisa. Thank you, Anne. That was great. <laughs> thank you. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.